Good morning, afternoon, evening. This is Replacement Level Morality. My name's Joseph. My name's Andrew. As you may have already determined based on a slight change to our release schedule last week, we've decided to start coming at you on Thursdays rather than Mondays. So we doubled up last week. We are able to uh, lay out some scorching hot timelines when it came to one of my favorite internet locales of all time, one Nick Fuentes. And we like that. We like being able to kind of be on the news cycle when something interesting happens. Spoiler alert, that's what happened again. So <laughs> what we'll, do you mean? <laughs> what happened this week, Joseph? <laughs> so we'll be a, we'll be a Thursday uh, podcast for the foreseeable future. And then one other note. Uh, first, thanks to everyone that is listening. We're we're pleased. We're not just talking to each other. Uh, our, we're not going to have an episode the week of Christmas. So Sunday, the 25th. That week, uh, you like every other broadcast medium on the planet, it's nothing but be but reruns and Christmas specials anyway. Uh, and so we are we're not going to be around, but we'll we'll see you again up to and then right after uh, we promise with with some hopefully some interesting conversation and some not ice cold takes. And speaking of current events and hopefully not ice cold takes, the Twitter files. So. Andrew, dun, dun, dun. Andrew got to be the one to tell me this happened because I was uh, I was too busy on Friday to, to know what had occurred. Matt Taibbi, journalist formerly of Rolling Stone and now a operator of his own well-read and well-subscribed sub Substack, does his own uh, podcast as well, Useful Idiots. I would say a, a very successful journalist in his own right has a couple of great books that are very much worth your time. Hate Inc. in particular is, is a favorite of mine as he really talks about how dumb the idea of presidential press coverage was even pre, in the pre-internet area, era when he was you know in the thick of it doing it for Rolling Stone and how things evolved from there. He is a well-respected journalist of no particular ideological affiliation. So to me, he seems he's always seemed clearly like aligned with not the center right, but kind of a new wave of neocons as the word originally meant, like liberal mugged by reality type. I, I put like Andrew Sullivan in the same camp. They like I, I would say he's still more formally left leaning in his personal politics, given his support of Bernie Sanders and general economic socialism socialism as a concept but i would say that the the best thing about matt taibbi is it colors the stories he chooses to pursue but not his coverage he broke a lot of stories when it came to the financial crisis because it was of significant interest to him how you know this these rich plutocrats basically nearly destroyed the financial system and how that trickled down to real people and being able to explain that and, and, and report on that and write a book about that is something that he was very good at doing, but it didn't carry with it a specific ideological message. It was his interest was in trying to translate a to B. And so he did. Right. Okay. And I think that makes him a good choice for a journalist that you give access to this information because he will and did, as we're going to discuss, point out the ways in which some of what we found out did conform to the 
I the assumed circumstances in regards to bias and in what ways it did not, which I think if you gave it to a lesser a lesser figure, they may you know, they may not have necessarily went that direction, you know. Yeah. So, in kind of our behind the scenes conversations about this, my concern was we didn't learn that much that we didn't know already by the dun 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 Twitter files. We knew that the New York Post story about the Hunter Biden laptop was aggressively censored on flimsy pretexts, and that. So one of the things we did learn was that they were explicitly calling out the lessons of 2016 in quotes, uh, which I assume means Trump got elected and we all understand that that was a bad thing. But like they actually said that out loud and we all kind of like thought that, but to see it in print was kind of something else. But I was so I was wondering what exactly did we learn from this that we didn't know, you know, like couple months after the fact. I think most critically we learned how it happened in terms of where the request came from, what the nature of the request was. And I think most critically who was responsible for doing it at Twitter, who was not responsible for doing it at Twitter, like what the process was internally in terms of how this all happened. And then what was the reaction of some of the people who who saw this happen and commented on it to Twitter, like directly to them? These are all things we didn't know before, and I think they're really important because a lot of the shade that was thrown immediately after this information came out was, oh, like you said, this is this is all something we already knew, you know, and and there's no allegation that the government directly requested a suppression of this. It was not like the FBI went to Twitter and said, do this. So really, what's the problem? And it's it's like, whoa, 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 hold on. What we now know is that the request came from political actors within the Biden campaign. So this was civilian to civilian, right? This is political hack goes to Twitter contact and says, this is disinformation. We are, we are saying that this is disinformation, not based on any fact we can point to, but merely emphasizing the, the, the possibility as reason for why it should be suppressed. And Im- importantly, going to Vijigade, the chief censor of Twitter, is probably the right way to, to put her. That request went to her, and she made the decision unilateral of Jack Dorsey. Yes. Jack Dorsey was not involved in the choice to censor the Hunter Biden laptop story. Vigigade made that decision on her own after political actors saying, this is, this is going to hurt our guy. You need to stop it because, you know, obviously Russians made it up and that was the entire justification for doing so. That's terrifying to me. Like that, that is very important. And that is, it is, Gross <laughs> in an entirely new way. It's one thing if the FBI goes to Twitter and says, we have evidence to believe that this is fake, that this is uh, a, a piece of intelligence that has been manufactured by Russia to influence the election. We have to ask you 
to censor or pull that information back while we investigate this matter further because we don't want this to interfere with an ongoing presidential election. And then for I, Twitter – I don't think that's one thing. I think that would be – I don't know if worse is the right word, but it, that's also terrifying for very different reasons. <laughs> it is, but it is different, right? Like Because you would assume if this were to occur, if a state actor were to ask for this – presume you know in the aftermath obviously having been incorrect there would be some way to determine if that state actor acted a in good faith but just merely incorrectly did i have evidence of this fact and presented to twitter in thinking that i was correct in making this assumption and i was just merely mistaken or did i invent this and thus there are people who are actionable and this these these people can be sued these agencies can be sued you know, like, I think that this is if the government imperils your civil rights, you can sue them. <laughs> like you can go to court and lose. I and, think this but, is some of your uh, your work in city government, coloring your experience. They don't do accountability in the federal government. You don't. You don't sue them and win. You don't. You. you nobody ever. You know, you fire some guy in Cincinnati when the IRS targets conservative organizations. You don't fire the people who are actually responsible or. You don't come to a like write a report about hey we screwed up here that that feel that all feels like city government. Now I I understand the um what you're saying is that when you're talking about the biggest stakes it's hard to make the system accountable, but you would at least have yeah it's it doesn't feel quite as satisfying that some guy in Cincinnati got fired for the IRS scandal and Laura Sleekman did not, but someone did get fired. There was accountability. There was a there was an acknowledgement in fact that it was incorrect that it occurred. Okay? Which matters. It does matter. Because it has not occurred again for a reason. Because it was it was ex- exposed, it was determined to be wrong, and someone was punished. These someone is doing a lot of work here. It, it is, but someone was, right? <laughs> a fall guy was found, right? And and the world moved on. But it's an entirely different thing because some political hack asking someone for a favor to do this thing because reasons, because everyone on involved in the conversation is aligned in their, their political priors. That's worse to me because it's unaccountable. Even, even to the extent that a, a bad actor on a federal level is barely accountable, they still are barely accountable. Uh, no if- one... No one will be successfully prosecuted. No one will be successfully sued in civil court. Nothing will happen to a single human being in any judicial system whatsoever at the end of the scandal because of what happened here. Because it was entirely private actor to private actor in private enterprise requesting information be suppressed. And it happened. Uh, There might be some accountability if, say a billionaire were to buy the company and then figure out who did all of these things that were bad, that were frustrating and built up over a bunch of years of like, why is all this bad things happening and buys it so that he can fire a bunch of people. And he did. And God bless, God bless America. I, (laughs) I, I cannot believe to this day that the Babylon Bee getting uh, locked out of their Twitter account as a consequence of call, calling a man a man is why this all happened. But it is why it happened. 
Elon Musk followed the Babylon Bee and it was his final straw. He's like, if that is not okay, we have a problem and I'm fucking buying this company and I'm saving it from itself. The Babylon Bee did a service to humanity that no one could possibly have known at the time was occurring by calling Rachel Levine man of the year. And getting Elon angry enough. But it's it's very important, I think, that this information has come out in the plain text that it has. That the Biden campaign asked for this to be suppressed and a bunch of Twitter apparatchiks that wanted Biden to win suppressed it for him and there was no discussion about it. And in fact, the CEO of the company, who probably would not have approved of this act, was explicitly left out of the decision making. That actually did fill in a, a gap for me because when do you remember in when Elon was buying Twitter and Jack turned it over to him and tweeted, I think we could have done better on free speech and I'm glad Elon is taking this to steer it more in that direction. Yeah, that, he was that, happy he was buying it. Yeah, that was weird to me. That was like, okay, Jack feels like he's, I say Jack because it's at Jack, but like, right. I, don't, I don't know. I think like he's the Mr. one. Mr. Dorsey felt yeah. like he was powerless in his own company and he's like kind of happy to see this happen. And yeah. this totally fits with that. That's why he got out. Remember, like it's why he quit. He quit after this happened and he quit probably because it's like I have a machine that I can no longer control. And I have these these institutions that I have allowed to to build up within it that even as CEO and even as a major shareholder, I cannot restrain because to do so would cause economic fallout that I would be accountable to and would would not keep my job. And he knew the only way it could be solved is it got bought and then it didn't matter what happened because only, now it's privately held and everyone can make the decisions they want to make. I don't, I don't even know if privately held was the key part, but like you can only fire the amount of people that need to be fired if the ownership changes hands. Because otherwise you're admitting that you, you screwed up by hiring, by being in the driver's seat as all of this was built in the first place. Like it, it's totally expected for when you buy something, you're going to change things up. Like he, but he didn't. Jack didn't have the ability to make those changes because there wasn't that change of ownership. I think that even if like the company had been bought and remained public, merged, you know, some other kind of acquisition circumstance, you name it, where it's not taken private, you would have the same problem because what Dorsey figured out and why he left is I can't, these people cannot be disposed of because all of the journalists on Twitter know the Twitter executives that are the hall monitors. And we saw it. We saw it in real time when they were all getting shit canned. The stories about how the platform was going to enter, you know, immediate collapse as a consequence of these decisions. You know, like the death watch was on. Ben, uh, was it Ben Rhodes? Ben Smith? One underscore. One underscore. I forget his name. Ben, the NBC guy. He was out there saying like, bye everybody, it's over. You know, amongst his many meltdowns over the last couple of weeks. Ben Collins. Ben Collins. Ben Collins, like everyone else like Ben Collins, predicted the death of the platform because all of his contacts went away. You know? And in, and he knew that that was going to happen and no, there would be no possibility of that going through and happening in that way if there were public shareholders because the value would have gone into the toilet. Like, Twitter's had a rough time. 
Elon Musk is on the on the hook for a lot right now. He is yeah. personally spending a lot of money to keep the company afloat because of the chaos within advertising revenues because of the choices that he's made. But they were all necessary. And they could only be done if he you know, he alone is accountable to those choices, which ultimately is the deal he struck. He had it. I mean, it got financed by outside parties as well as himself, which is part of the reason he needs to turn a profit so you can pay him off. But that was he. This could only happen if it was bought private. And he, Jack Dorsey, knew it, and he knew that like there was five people on the planet who could buy it, and only one who would, and it was Elon Musk. And that's why he said this is the best person to buy Twitter because it was literally the only one. <laughs> it was it. That was the only guy who could save this platform. And he, and to hit the man's immense credit. He is doing a lot. He is still a mercurial nightmare who is disdainful of critical analysis of his own choices, like any billionaire who can buy acquiescence from every single human on the planet would be, right? He does not like being questioned, and no one in the position of Elon Musk probably would be. He's a weirdo. He's a weirdo. He's from South Africa. South Africans are weird, bro. It's a weird yeah. culture to grow up in. It is. It's a very weird culture to have grown up in, you know, in the apartheid South Africa. And he's a weird guy as a consequence of that upbringing. But he is doing a lot to actually salvage a platform that has become de facto public square and one of the most vital conduits of information uh, available to the human species. And... He, I give him immense credit for taking that on at his own personal uh, expense, quite literally. You you made me look up uh, at one underscore Ben Collins. His his bio has dystopia beat. Oh yeah, you want to talk about a guy who is one hundred percent flying on his own supply? He's not just high. He's like he is. <laughs> He is ha- he is on a deep DMT trip on his own supply. Yeah. yeah. He is insufferable on every level. His he had this weird back and forth meltdown with a number of journalists over the last 2 weeks. Like Glenn Greenwald was one of them, but that's like okay. That's normal. Every, everyone has a meltdown at Glenn Greenwald's like <laughs> Like Glenn Greenwald is so it's like I so axiomatic in his dis, dislike and distrust of any center of power and his all-consuming hatred of mainstream journalism as because of its proximity and of to power and its willingness to overlook its monstrosities that every single journalist, no matter who you are, eventually fights with Glenn Greenwald. But just like normal guys, like he had a fight with uh uh, Nate Silver, because yes. Nate, Nate Silver was calling out that like Ben Collins, you're acting kind of sus. What is this? And he, he's like made like some shitty comment of like, don't you have elections to be wrong about? Yeah. And he, the one he picked was like a 60, 40 election. It's like, oh, you predicted this wrong. Like, are, you are bad at math. It's like, no, actually, I, I had determined that this was one of many possible outcomes that was still statistically quite likely, which is what I spent the last six months saying was that there was no evidence to suggest that it would be a blowout one way or another because there were so many unknowns. Do you not understand how, how, how anything I do works like that, that I'm, I'm Uh, not, I'm not sports betting. (laughs) 
I'm trying to provide a, a, a genuinely objective analysis about the the possibilities within an electoral framework. I'm sorry, are you are you too busy telling me Twitter is going to fail as I write this tweet? <laughs> like, oh, oh, oh. Yeah, like Twitter is going to be gone in two hours, two days, whatever. Yeah, oh, all, all those like uh, if this is my last tweet. Oh yeah. Oh, you find me on Mastodon. Let me tell you, Andrew, when I heard that the the journalists were fleeing to Mastodon, I actually laughed out loud. Mastodon is a is part of the Fediverse. Do you know what the Fediverse is? I, I do, but I'm going to say no because I don't want to admit it. Okay. <laughs> so the Fediverse, because you're not admitting that you know what it is, is a a decentralized social media platform. So the idea is that it is open source software that you can purchase and then use to create your own boutique social media Twitter clone. But the the benefit of using the Fediverse is that every boutique Twitter clone that you're using this open source so- software for can communicate with each other like email, basically. So if you are on a... Fediverse instance like Mastodon, you can speak to people on a Fediverse instance like Post uh, and see each other and choose to follow each other because it's basically uses that same sort of name at name of instance dot end of registry, right? Right. Which is a neat play. It's a neat idea to create open source Twitter is that you can run your own Twitter. It can function on your rules. And then you are you federate, that's what it's called, to be part of the greater network of Fediverse instances. And you can interact with it and it can interact with you. Except the part where everyone makes their own rules. So the thing about the Fediverse is that everyone that got banned off of Twitter from 2012 until 2022, they went to the Fediverse. And they spent the last 10 years basically in a troll hyperbolic time chamber training with each other to be the most monstrous animals on the internet in this closed circuit that no one knew about except for very online people. Maybe soft journalists like Tale of the Wrens journey onto the Fediverse and then suddenly there's a bunch of anime avatars who are dive-bombing them with racial slurs they didn't even know existed. Okay? <laughs> like, you know, assy art of the Holocaust for like, for, for days, right? Because every single node is interacting with Mastodon and then Mastodon has to try and block the nodes that are being harassing. But the thing is, is like, it's you so nodes. it's patchy. There's other nodes. And then, so every time one comes up and starts interacting and then you just defederate. And then if you defederate, you're only talking to people who are on Mastodon, which is a tiny amount of people. So it's, it's like, oh, so you went from Twitter, which is like the serene pool that's very well regulated and very well moderated and bad stuff never happens. And for the last two years, nothing like people speaking opinions don't like hasn't even occurred. And then you go and you're like, what if I go ahead and jump into this, this, this ocean that's filled with great white sharks who have had nothing, who have dreamed of fresh meats for a decade. And I represent as a totem, the very people who put the here in the fucking first place beautiful it was beautiful to behold and it's like oh man this isn't working out like i fucking wonder why (laughs) like that's that's where the real internet still lives guys you're gonna get bullied for real out there that's where it's (laughs) i don't have a fediverse account (laughs) 
I don't deal with those maniacs. Are you kidding me? Polite society banned them years ago. And there's a reason why. <laughs> I almost feel bad for the journos. I don't. Almost. But thankfully, there's one good one. It's Matt Taibbi. And uh, evidently, apparently, Barry Weiss is also going to uh, be looking at all this information. There'll be more uh, that she comes invited, out. She invited Elon onto her podcast. <laughs> She's like, hey, do you want to talk about these? I wonder if that's going to happen. I really hope it does. I probably will. I mean, yeah, it seems likely. Like, if he gave yeah. her the files. I, I, I think that it's quite likely that he goes on, honestly. Like, Which, by the way, if you've never listened to Honestly, Ari Weiss, you should. It's a good show. She has good guests. It's well, it's well done. And, he, you know, he, he seems interested in just it being reported. And it's yeah. it's funny that the reason why he has all these receipts is because of a consent decree that no internal messages at Twitter could ever be deleted. <laughs> FTX. Yeah. Oh, and then one last note. One thing more I wanted to bring up about this is the messages that were sent to them about what they were doing at the time. You know, like the 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 contemporary messages, the contemporary Rainius messages, whatever. Ro Khanna. Based Ro Khanna. <laughs> so you know who Ro Khanna is? He's a, is a member of the Progressive Caucus in the House. He's uh, certainly a left-wing Democrat. He is a lot of fans in what you would call the, the squad-based universe, although he is not a member of said squad himself. He is also someone willing to be more honest about difficult questions in public in the way that more glory seeking congressmen are not. And it didn't strike me as entirely surprising that he went out of the way to write Vijigade and say, you have made an absolutely titanically bad decision in censoring this story. You are clearly violating the first amendment rights of a whole bunch of people and not being permitted to talk about this. Not in a legal sense, but in like a, this is wrong. Sense. This is wrong. This is like politically, this is how it's going to be interpreted. Right. Mm-hmm. Which is what he was saying. And, and this is what's happening literally right now. The inevitable consequence of what will occur because of this is that section two thirty will be dismantled because this is exactly the thing that no one will have. No one, in the political world, left, right, or center, will have the stomach for you doing. It's like, so indefensible. Okay. Yeah, like this is so bad that you have probably destroyed Section 230 in your in your choice. And it is correct that it dies because of you. You know, like, that was his attitude. And it's, you know... And it wasn't just... It was him messaging, but he he was saying, like, other Democratic caucus members are upset that, that this is going on. Yeah, like, if we're mad about it, just think about how mad the other side's going to be about it. And if if they and we are all mad, guess what that means? There's a majority of people who are mad. <laughs> like, and that will not be good for you. And that will not be good for you or anyone else. Now, I will say, thankfully, the direction of going on Section 230 reform seems to be to change it rather than eliminate it, which was the big fear. I mean, that's essential, right? Like, you can't yeah. have... You can't host a comment section if you're going to get sued every time someone says something defamatory in your comment section. And, you can't and, read every comment. And 
I think that the fear that people had about when the idea of Section 230 reform has been raised in the past is, is it going to be something that is done under the cover of an event like this story that ultimately strips the protection people have to express themselves online in the name of safety and eliminate section 230 in a way that does make it very easy to censor and eliminate speech on the internet? Or is it going to be a change that prevents platforms from making a decision specifically like this in the future? And fortunately so far, all indicators are that it is the latter, which is what it needs to be. I, I did not necessarily think that that would be the case, but I suppose it kind of has to be if you're going to get enough votes to do it. You n- you never want to bet on Congress responsibly writing legislation. No one trusts the other side, right? Yeah, you can't it, you can't fix this problem by LARPing, so it kind of comes down to the serious legislators to write something that's going to get over the line. And because both because there's a lack of trust section 230 platform neutrality is has to be part of it so that both sides feel that they can still communicate effectively and right. because that because that is feeding into the decisions that they're making that is why they're going the direction they're going which is which is good but they've whole campaign infrastructures built around reaching people on social media so they, they can't they can't toss the whole thing yeah and clearly one side is would be in stark fear that they would be silenced off the internet if the other side is wielding power in a world where platform neutrality is not enforced by law. So that's good. Very interesting. We'll be, we'll be excited to see what happens next. That's all I got for now. Andrew, what do you got? I wanted to run through a mental model of how oppression works at the ground level. That sounds complicated, but really, I mean, like, when you send in tanks to crush a protest, what actually happens? What determines if your protest ends up like 1956 Budapest or if it ends up like uh, you end up with Muammar Gaddafi getting beheaded and other poor treatments and ultimately toppled by his own people. What what leads to one outcome or the other? Uh, because, so I never had this explained to me. You kind of just pick it up by, you know, trying to, by looking at individual instances in history. And I just, especially for people who grew up in the post-Cold War era, where who came out on top of what insurrection mattered less to people in their daily lives like how how many people care about uh tunisia getting overthrown in a coup it's not that big of a deal where it's like oh the the kremlin has turned tunisia into a satellite that mattered so there's this whole generation uh um, this is a subset of the war on terror was a huge mistake in a lot of regards where it was like the only thing our foreign policy did for two decades and now people forgot how to think geostrategically. I wanted to lay out how this works and what what it looks like mechanically. So you start with uh, you start with there are police and there are protesters and the protesters demands go unmet because if they meet the demands, the protests dissipate, the protesters 
escalate into rioters. You can find videos of riot police clashing with rioters, and it ends up looking a lot like medieval combat, where there are formations of people. And if a formation breaks, you end up with a route. But as long as the formation stays cohesive, then you kind of can't lose until it breaks. And as long as police are willing to keep riot shields up, riot shields end up mattering a lot, uh, your government doesn't really fall. Willingness to keep those shields up is a function of how many rocks are being thrown at them, how many Molotov cocktails are being thrown at them, how many bullets are being shot at them. With each of the- There's a clear hierarchy of yes. difficulty. You know, like story mode, medium difficulty, commander <laughs> difficulty, you know? Yeah. Because mm. uh, they don't want to be out there. That they're, that's, that's what their paycheck le- relies on. And the, the, it's their paycheck and how much they care about the regime. Because you have a lot of the protesters being students is very common because they're not people who are bought into the system and dependent on it. Um, they often have the, outside information. You know, they have their higher education. So they have a better context for the regime. Mm-hmm. You know, like they, they, unlike a rural person, they ha- they know more exists than what the regime is providing. You know, they could do better. That's why they right. tend to be students. So you have something like Hong Kong where like a third of the city is out on the streets. And last week I mentioned, I think they had a real shot because there were so many of them that the riot police can't contain the riot because there's just too many people on the other side. If it comes down to rioting, I don't know how much it did. There was some, but not a lot. It was a lot of, of protesting. There Um, was a, there was talk there of, China might show up with tanks, right? Like that, that was that and had entered the chat before things came to a sudden stop as a consequence of COVID. Like the escalation to direct confrontation with lethal force had been put on the table. And you say escalation to lethal force. That is another thing that has a cost to the regime attached yeah. Where you'll put down the the riot very quickly if you start shooting into the crowd, but uh, the Boston massacre didn't go well for the British because it just costs you so much in terms of legitimacy. Like you're going to bring more people out. Your your police are much more rapidly going to turn against you, which is the real thing that you don't want that you can't have happen. And that's ultimately why. I mean, and maybe we stop here for just a second to talk about all this in context of Hong Kong, since we we brought it up, and it is a really probably the most recent example prior to the the past month of mass protests and the possibility that there could have been real civil conflict. Imagine a world where COVID doesn't happen. Hong Kong protests continue. City is in turmoil. It cannot be controlled by the police. China decides to come in with the steel fist and put it down. And it costs a lot of lives, right? You won't do that easily. You won't do that without some some real bloody, uh, some blood in the streets. And you wouldn't be able to hide it either because everyone in Hong Kong's got phones and they, they're not stuck behind the, the, the great firewall. So whatever you do would have come at a much bigger cost than what you would do in the mainland if you did it in Hong Kong. And it would have been obvious to everybody. Like 
yes, they would have succeeded in putting it down. It would have, but at the cost that they would have paid to do so would have been quite severe. Yes. So there's, there's shades of political control. And if the political control of Hong Kong had deteriorated, it would have been expensive in blood to rebuild it. The reason I am under the political control of the city of Cincinnati is even if I could get a thousand people to riot, there are a couple thousand police that would show up and arrest all of us very easily. It would be completely trivial. That actually it, did what this is what happened when the George Floyd riots happened. Yes. Uh, so a lot of cities had a lot of problems, if you recall, but Cincinnati was not one of them. We had one night uh, where some windows got broken and some things happened and the local PD and political officials were done with that immediately. And the next night they declared a curfew. They kettled all of the protesters that were out, thousands of them, and brought in, bought in buses, like metro buses, arrested all of them and processed all of them at the jail. And broke the protests in one night by just merely deciding to use force to say, we are going to book you all. We're going to have make you all have court dates. And that's what's up. And it did. It did the job. It, it stopped the protest. And you can contrast that to an area like the Donbass where Ukraine doesn't actually have political control even before the war. If they had tried to contain any mass civil unrest by just walking a bunch of people in there, they would have all been shot. <laughs> that's that's where the line between civil unrest and military conflict starts to blur really quickly, depending on how much the particular population involved is how hard they're willing to fight is crucial. And I am how, not and how supplied they are to fight. And which, how supplied they are to fight. I am not willing to die to be out of the political control of the city of Cincinnati. <laughs> really who would? <laughs> it's pretty nice. We're fine. <laughs> We're fine. So you so you're trading off these willingness resources between whatever law enforcement and army the, the forces of political control and the forces of unrest, civil or non-civil unrest, because we've we kind of crossed that line with some of our examples. And, and already you can tell how important it is that the, the population that's trying to resist has a level of arms beyond, here are some rocks that I picked up from my feet. You got to be able to play on commander mode. <laughs> you know, you can't you can't play story mode. You know, even with COVID, if there was the same ratio of like ratio of more guns per person that we have in the states in Hong Kong, it would have never been subdued. Never in a million years. You just can't. <laughs> you, you you have to establish dominance over every section of the city individually they can all shoot back this is why when putin was thinking about invading we're like he can't control the whole country there's 44 million people in ukraine you can't establish political control over the country in the cold war they had like math that you need like 12 uh you need a soldier for every 12 civilians to establish control of a place that doesn't want to be controlled 
and Putin had like nothing near that ratio. Yeah, you'd be just like laughably close. Yeah, like even if you're militarily successful, you're not going to actually be able to retain control unless they want to be controlled. And the very Which first thing he thought he was going to do it. Yeah, and 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 Zelensky's first act when the invasion happened was to open the armories and just say everyone get guns, protect yourself. You know, like they. You, there was a video that got passed around social media over the last three or four days. It's got millions of views, and I don't know who originated it, but it's evidently, if if the story is to be believed, of a security camera within an apartment of someone in China who complained to his building about the building being sealed shut as a consequence of COVID zero and four different party apparatchiks showing up to bully him for his wrong think up to and including assaulting him physically in front of his children goes on for minutes. Okay. Okay. I added it to my pile of things that will never happen in America. (laughs) Like you want to talk about why it's important for a population to be armed for their self-defense. It's so that a bunch of government officials can't show up and physically assault you for thinking or saying the wrong thing. That is not something that happens to an armed populace. It's not something that happens ever. And because those two different bits of willingness, the willingness of the police to show up and knock on some guy's door, if you know that there's a very good chance that he has a gun, the willingness of people to rebel if they have the guns to know that they're more likely to be successful in their rebellion, it's just not possible to establish political control on an unwilling population. So having an armed population instantly creates this level of political legitimacy because you know that you couldn't control those people if they weren't kind of satisfied with how things were going. Yeah. And it creates an incentive for your political operation to make sure that the the fucking train stays on the, on the rails to not try and fundamentally change the bargain because, Oh, they can violently resist you successfully. And I also, the, the the habit of Americans that I love the most, yeah, I'm just going to run my fucking patriotic flag right up the flagpole right now. I love that Americans have taken to the idea of that when the police show up to your door, you start recording them and you start talking shit to them. You do not, you do, <laughs> deference is for suckers. All right. Like a fucking police officer shows up at your door with a gun and a badge and, and an authoritative look on his face. You get a camera, you start recording everything. You do not let him in your house and you tell him the fuck off unless he has a warrant. I love every single time I see that. I'm like, yes, yes, that is exactly the right attitude. That is exactly, you know why? Those are servants. Those are civil servants. They are supposed to serve you. They're there for you, to protect you, not to rule you. And that means if they're there to use their police powers for legitimate purpose, they need to prove it and they need to prove it to your satisfaction. And anything less should be entertained as an assault upon you. Not necessarily to your satisfaction, because you can serve a warrant against someone who doesn't want, but to the satisfaction of a judge and a jury of your peers. Fair fair point. That is really what I mean. Community, should they, should you treat them poorly enough that civil unrest is warranted um so with all of this context it should become immediately clear just how dumb the swalwell take of there's no need for guns because 
the government have drone has drones and nukes is God. it's it's completely divorced from how these situations actually play out it's, and it's oh. nice that we have the nice clear example of afghanistan because <laughs> like <laughs> we just lost a war to a bunch of pig farmers with ak's like <laughs> yeah cave dwelling pig farmers with ak's I mean, Swalwell's take is the only is the kind of take that can only come from a man who sleeps with Chinese spies, right? Like that is that is the only the, the thing o- that you see. Yeah, it is the only only a man who has banged a Chinese spy could possibly have a take that fucking dumb. And I, I I've had this di- this discussion actually with my one of my cousins. Uh, I have a I have a lot of wealthy family members and. A particular branch of my family are East Coast, Massachusetts, Brahmin elite to the maximum. Like every stereotype. And my cousin, whom I I very much like, came to my wedding. I, I, I adore her and I don't mean ill in any way, but she is a creature of her environment. And she does not conceive at all of why anyone could possibly need guns. Right. She's of that ilk. And I, I asked like, what, what, what guarantees your rights? What guarantees your rights that you are, you know, particularly uh, vehement about? And it's like, did she answer paper? She answered like system. She, the the answer she gave was democracy, voting, legitimate, all of these things. And I said, so what prevents those systems from deciding that they will just deprive you of your rights regardless of your feelings on the matter. It is the fact that the population around you has an expectation of that occurring and is armed to violently resist the imposition of unjust power upon you that allows you to enjoy these institutions to the degree that you do with the surety that you have that they will continue to function in the fashion you are accustomed. Like if, if that threat doesn't exist, what prevents the next person that decides, you know, you know what, uh, the Supreme Court has made the decision. We'll just see them enforce it and and simply do as they wish. I mean, just today we had Donald Trump send out a truth talking about how the Constitution's bullshit and shouldn't exist because of the fact that, you know, he was denied a fair election and he should just be appointed president and be a dictator. Like the it's he's a clown and I I've enjoyed his disintegration and the fact that more and more GOP members have clearly started to see the light that they just need to shed him like old skin and move on. But wh- what prevents the next person like that from imposing their will in the fashion that Trump just described? Oh, because everyone has guns and they're going to say no. Oh, OK. Well, that's that's probably the reason why. Yeah. The, the the Swalwell take of that will just drone you if you try to resist is misguided because at the point that you give that a Trump-like figure or whoever managed to subvert, uh, control the federal government and installed themselves as dictator for life, by giving that order, they have already lost. That They have no legitimacy left. The whatever they did to convince the state to side with them will uh, be undone very quickly if you start ordering them to drone their cousins or 
that they're siblings and brothers that live in different parts of the country. That's it. That's the ball game. We're all done here. Yeah. Uh, I, I also think of like Western democracies too, where you started to see a real disintegration of civil liberties over the last two years in a way that's quite distressing to, to witness. And you wonder how much a lack of an armed population has to do with that. Um, Australia was lousy with forced compliance into systems that a lot of people disagreed with up to and including involuntary imprisonment, essentially uh, for a large scale. Yeah. At, at, at scale. As well as forced uh, adoption of uh, health interventions that some people disagreed with and didn't necessarily want to participate in. They could not resist. Why? That's not an armed population. Britain has started to see a very clear move towards broad censorship, not only in expression on the internet, but um, uh, up to and including speech within the home. There was a, a law that was passed in Scotland where uh, anything that, that is deems hate speech by the state that is spoken in confidence in your own home is illegal and can be prosecuted if found out. That happens. Why? Well, you don't have an armed population that can tell them to fuck off, right? Like, yes, the police there have an unlimited ability to, to wield force and can enter your home and arrest you if they so fit. For, for you having a discussion with, with your spouse that they didn't like. That's, that these, this is bad. And you, I think that there's an open question of like, if, if there was a second amendment within the United Kingdom or within Australia, if these things would happen, I would say that they would not have. As people of ideas we can fall into a trap of overrating the importance of ideas. You said your sis, your cousin, what gives her rights? And I answered, did, did she answer a piece of paper? And that was kind of flippant, but also kind of not, you know, if, if the constitution is not believed in by the people with the most guns, whoever that may be, they can enforce their will on the others. Full stop. Uh, ideas only get you so far. Uh, it's There was... Uh, the Scottish Enlightenment was the best of all of the individual flavors of Enlightenment. It was the most focused on individual rights. It was the most focused on the things that we hold dear in liberal democracies, separation of church and state, freedom of speech, all that. So much of that comes from the tradition of the Scottish enlightenment. And yet here is this example that you're citing of just a naturally disconcerting. Yeah. Creating a dystopian level of censorship. Yeah. Because of hate speech, which by the way, is not like traditional, you know, um, language that would be truly like, beyond the pale i'm talking about you know they arrested a guy because as a joke he made his pug uh uh learn how to do a, a nazi salute on command i remember to this, annoy his, this annoy his girlfriend ago. yeah like they arrested him he went to he, he was found guilty you know like he was held to account as a consequence of a joke that he played on his his girlfriend that he put on his youtube channel for her to find as as a, a little a bit of a laugh 
And we do not condone making poor puppies Nazi salute. They don't know any better. They're adorable. They're wonderful I, creatures. I think Count Dankula is hilarious. So I, <laughs> I, I will not con- condemn his actions. I will merely state that he has uh, been prosecuted by the state for harmless speech. And uh, so it's not just China. It's not just Iran. It's not just the far fringes of the dystopian, you know, totalitarian states that are impinging on rights and and forcing their populations to accept, uh, you know, things that they don't want to accept. It's it's Western democracies as well. And and really alone, you have the United States where these things are not only uh, preserved uh, and enshrined explicitly in law, uh, but also guaranteed by an armed populace. Uh, We got our bros in based Switzerland. That's true, but they're also just a bunch of rich bankers. So I really, when people bring up Switzerland, I have to bring up like this is a country with a GDP uh, per capita that is bizarre, right? Like there are no more Switzerlands in the world. No one can be Switzerland but Switzerland. So you know they 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 are a unique little little mountain enclave, wonderful gem, you know. And God bless them for all of their their uniqueness, but. Ain't nobody else gets to be the offshore tax haven. Just gonna be them, you know. Well, the Bahamas are doing their best. Uh, <laughs> it all comes back to FTX, apparently. Like this, this whole podcast. Well, I, I'll have some things to say about FTX next week because I want to talk about Beto O'Rourke. I'll okay. be my tease. So, thank you for listening to Replacement Level Morality, and we'll see you next week. Thanks.